One essential skill that every believer should possess is the ability to read the Bible and clearly understand what it's saying. Um, if you've been a believer uh, uh, for any length of time, I, I think you would agree with me. This is an essential thing that everyone who follows Christ as their Savior needs to be able to do. Uh, that's why it's one of the very first topics that we cover when we are doing discipleship with someone is to teach them about the Bible and teach them how to understand the Bible. The Bible itself confesses of itself that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Now God has given us his holy word for a purpose. And that verse tells us what that purpose is. Why he gave it to us is so that we may be complete, fully equipped for everything that he wants us to do. And there are four aspects of this equipping process. You know, ESV says teaching, reproof, correction, and training. You know, this equipping process is a, a process of being able to understand truth. And then a process of exposing the rebellion that exists in my heart. Correcting the mistakes that I make on a regular basis. And then training me to live in such a way that pleases God. The word of God is essential in the spiritual development of the children of God. And so for the word of God to be able to be effective in equipping us, we must be able to properly understand and apply it to everyday life. The art and the science of understanding and applying the Bible is a process called hermeneutics. And we've talked about this before. We've discussed this process of exegesis. Um, and by the way, do you remember the difference between exegesis and eisegesis? Um, some of you are looking at me very uh, blank-faced. And so let me share with you what the difference between exegesis and eisegesis is because it really is important. You see, exegesis means to draw out. Whereas eisegesis means to lean into. So what that means is, is that we eisegete scripture by leading our own ideas into the text. In other words, eisegesis is when we read something into a biblical text that may not actually be there. And unfortunately, that happens a lot in preaching in churches all over the world every week but exegesis is when we try to draw out of the text what is there exegesis is always our goal we don't want to put our thoughts onto god's word but we want to pull god's thoughts out of his word 18th century preacher uh, charles simeon explained it this way he said my endeavor is to bring out of scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. Never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. This must always be our goal as well. To draw out of Scripture what God wants us to see. So this process of exegesis is governed by a set of principles or rules by which we must abide when seeking to interpret scripture for understanding and for application. Now I've shared many of these principles with you in the past. I'm going to scoot this out. It's, I keep thinking someone's standing next to me. <laughs> and that scared me. Um, but uh, I've shared many of these principles with you in the past. Um, but before we deal with today's text, I want to take a moment and look at this exegetical process just a little more closely. It's also referred to as the inductive Bible study process. You may have heard of that concept before, or some people call it a discovery 
Bible study process. But an inductive Bible study has three main parts to it. Those parts are observation, interpretation, and application. And if you do soap journaling in our recharge books or otherwise, you know that soap journaling is kind of a shortened form of this inductive process because we have observation and application uh, in a soap journal. Well, in our Discipleship Pathway 2, which is, is this book, we, we teach a simple four-step process for how to understand and apply the Bible. And, and the process is just simply, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? What, no, why have I, oh, I was like, there's four steps. I'm just getting three. How do we start when we study the Bible? We pray. <laughs> we pray. So it's pray, say, mean, and apply. Those are the four simple steps that we're looking at. We pray our, our Psalm 119 prayer, or we call it the P, P119 prayer, which is open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And we're asking God to speak into our hearts as we look into his word. And so we pray to start. And then we ask, what does the Bible say? We ask questions uh, to discover what it's saying. Questions like who, what, when, where. Why and how? Now, this is not an English lesson, but that should bring back some memories, right? These six interrogatives that help us to discover truth in all situations are the same six interrogatives that we need to look at when we're studying Scripture. As we look at Scripture, we need to remember that we need to interpret a text within its historical and its cultural context. We need to remember that the Bible cannot mean what it never meant. So if we're, we're leading into this text and putting our ideas on top of the text, we can make it mean things that God never intended. So we must discover that original meaning to the original recipients first by asking who, what, when, where, why, and how. So that's what does the Bible say. Then we look at what does the Bible mean. What is the intended meaning for the original recipients? We must always remember that as we're reading scripture, the Bible will never contradict itself. And so if we come to a meaning that we think a text means, except it contradicts something else in the scripture, then guess what? We are eisegeting the text rather than exegeting the text. We've got to figure out what it means within the context of the Bible as a whole. And remember, the Bible is the best commentary on itself. So look at what scripture tells us about itself. And then that final step is how does God want me to apply his truth? How does God want me to apply his truth? You see, biblical truth is intended for personal application. Did you hear that? This is not just a book about information. This is a book for transformation. God wants us to apply the things that we learn from his word to our personal lives. But the key word here, the key phrase here, is that we must learn how to apply his truth. We cannot twist truth to make it into something that it's never been before. We must apply his truth. So every time I sit down to study God's word, this is the process that I'm going through. You know, I start by asking, okay, what does the Bible say? You know, it's, it's kind of funny. At times people ask me, how do you come up with all the stuff that you preach and you teach every week? And, and I, I appreciate the, the question, but the answer is quite simple. My response is and always will be that it's pretty easy when you focus on the Bible and simply share what it says. Are you all awake with me? You here? It's pretty easy to come up with uh, information to preach if you just tell what the Bible has to say. And so that's what I do. So last week we finished up Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. And so today we're going to be studying from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And in order to, to discover 
what the Bible is teaching us from this passage to be able to apply these truths to our lives, I'm going to be utilizing our six interrogatives. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And so that will uh, give us our outline uh, today as we ask some, some questions dealing with these two verses in Hebrews chapter 12. If you have your Bible, look at Hebrews 12 and let's read together verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this morning, we're going to ask who, what, when, where, why, and how. The first thing that we see in this verse, verse 1, is the word therefore. And as we've talked about many times before, anytime we see the word therefore, we need to remember all that the author has just written and consider what is coming in light of everything that has just been said. So in light of this synopsis of these, the lives of these great heroes of the faith, God wants us now to live our lives by faith. So let's dive into these two verses, again, using our six interrogatives. And the first thing that we know uh, or notice is, who are these witnesses? Who are these witnesses that the author tells us about here in verse one. Well, the cloud of witnesses is this group of Old Testament saints who, by their testimony, have affirmed that God can be trusted. The word witness here is from the Greek word martis. And I don't always tell you uh, Greek words and so forth, but I want you to hear this word, martis. It's the word we get our English word martyr from. A witness is a martyr, someone who testifies according to the truth. And so the interesting thing is that we find a, a form of this same Greek word occurring multiple times in Hebrews chapter 11. So if we look back and read just a few verses from Hebrews 11, we're going to hear a repeating word, okay? I'm going to read starting in verse 2, and I'm going to skip around. But listen and tell me what's the word that shows up in each of these verses. Hebrews 11, verse 2, it says, For by it, talking about faith, the people of old received their commendation. Then in verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then in verse 39, the Bible says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. What's the common denominator that happens in every one of those verses? Did you notice the word? Commended. Commended. And by the way, another principle of hermeneutics. Anytime you see a word that's repeated over and over again, you need to pay attention to that word. But this word commended is the same root word. It's the verbal form, but it's the same root word as the word witness, martis. It's that same word. It's, this word is used to describe the status of an individual in the sight of God. As Brother David read just a few minutes ago when he was looking at verse 39, he talked about it as being the approval of God. God was commending 
them. He was approving of them. He was witnessing that they were now reconciled with him. Literally, it's saying that God is is a witness on their behalf. Over and over here in chapter 11. And so now the author turns things around and and instead of God being a witness on their behalf, now these ancient believers bear witness on God's behalf in verse 1 of chapter 12, affirming that God can be trusted. We often have have this idea that this this cloud of witnesses is somehow watching us run our race of life, watching the way in which we live our lives. You know what? They may be spectators who are observing our performances. They may be, but the writer's use of the word witness here favors the sense that they are actively testifying to us, for us. I mean, even as we read just a moment ago um, in verse 4, and though Abel, oh, and through his faith, though he died, Abel still speaks. All of these heroes of the faith are still speaking into our lives. They are testifying, they are witnessing to us that God is faithful. We have seen God work in their lives. And because of that, we know that he will be faithful in our lives as well. These Old Testament saints are not the only witnesses of God's faithfulness in our lives today, though. Whose testimony is still speaking into your life? Maybe it's someone that has gone on long before. They may have died years and years ago. And yet their voice is still the voice you hear in your head. Whose testimony is still speaking? Take a moment to think about your individual heroes of faith. Who had an impact on your life that is no longer here with you? Or whose testimony is still speaking into your life even though they are gone? Or for that matter, who is currently impacting your life for the cause of Christ? These are the witnesses that are urging us on to run the race with endurance, the race that God has set before us. You know, we've talked a lot about our family legacy over the past two months, and and. Um, we've asked the question, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? And we've said, you know, your legacy starts with you. You may not have a family legacy, but your legacy begins with you. Well, I was, I was at the Central Baptist College Scholarship Gala Friday evening. I was blessed by being given a ticket to attend. And the, the main speaker Friday evening was Dr. Jack Graham, who is the pastor at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas. And something he said is appropriate here. He said, don't just leave a legacy, live a legacy. Don't just leave a legacy, live a legacy. And so I asked this morning, how is your life? How's your your testimony impacting the lives of others? Don't just hope that someday people will remember your faith. Make an impact for them today. Live that legacy. Well, that's the first interrogative. Who are these witnesses? Let's look at number two. And yes, they get shorter as we go along, okay? What are we to do? What are we to do? Well, Hebrews 12 verse 1 tells us two main things that we need to do in order to live a legacy. And what it says is that we need to remove everything from our lives that will slow us down or trip us up 
And we need to run the race that God has set before us. Two very simple things, right? Well, maybe not simple, but it's a simple understanding of this scripture. What are we to do to live a godly legacy? We are to lay aside every weight and we are to run the race. Well, let's look at each of these. This idea of removing everything from our lives that, are, that will slow us up or trip us, sorry, slow us down or trip us up. Um, it actually has two different things here that it mentions. It says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let's look at these in the opposite order. The sin first. We need to remove sin from our lives. This refers to the specific sins that each of us individually is most likely to commit. I don't know what your personal pet sins are, but you do and God does. Those are the things that we need to lay aside. We need to remove from our life. There are certain things that, that entangle us. More so than other things. Some sins that tempt and degrade others will have no appeal for us. But then the things that, that tempt us may not be an issue for someone else. We need to remove the, the sin that is our individual. You know what it is. You know what sin this scripture is referring to in your life? So what is it? Please don't. Talk back to me right now. I don't ever have to worry about that. Y'all are pretty quiet as a general rule. But what is it? What is that sin that God has in your mind right now that you need to remove from your life? It's vitally important to identify these sins in your life so that you are ready and able to combat the power and control that those sins have over you. If you are just taken by surprise every time you're tempted, then you're not living a very self-aware life. You know what that sin is. Be aware of it and prepare for battle when the temptation comes. And remember, God never gives us a temptation that it will, is too great for us, but he will provide a way of escape if we'll just look for that way of escape from the temptation. So the first thing we must do is remove sin from our lives. But notice the second thing it talks about first is removing weights in our lives. The, uh, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The, the weight refers here to something that is prominent. Something that sticks out in your life, a bulk or a mass. It's something that becomes a burden to you or a hindrance to you. And so not only do we need to remove sin from our lives, we need to remove hindrances as well. R. Kent Hughes points this out. He says, not all hindrances are, or weights are sin. In fact, what is a hindrance to you may not be a hindrance in any way to someone else. A hindrance is something otherwise good that weighs you down spiritually. What is it that weighs you down spiritually? He goes on, he says, it could be a friendship or an association, an event or a place, a habit, a pleasure or entertainment, or even an honor. But if this otherwise good thing drags you down, you must, he says, strip it away. What are some hindrances? You know, it could just simply be a busy schedule, folks. Do you have enough time to spend with the Lord on a day-to-day -day basis? If not, then you've got some hindrances in your life. So he says to remove everything from our lives that will slow us down or trip us up. And then secondly, run the race that God has set before us. You see, your race and my race do not look the same. 
We each have a specific course that has been mapped out for us by God. Some of these courses are relatively straight. Some of these courses are just like the, uh, the pig trail Highway 23 heading to Ozark. Just all over the place. All kinds of crazy curves and turns. Some all seem uphill. Some are, are flat as they can be. But here's the thing that the common denominator is that all of our races are long. None of these are, are sprints. They're all marathons. Each of us, however, without exception, every single one of us is able to finish our race. Why can I say that? Because I know that God said his grace is sufficient. What is the race that God has put before you? You remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Those two things go together. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, he said, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is the race that God has set before you? Or another way to say that is this. What is God's will for your life? What is God's will for your life? You know, um, <laughs> I had the opportunity to go to the birthday party, the 80th birthday party of my sixth grade teacher yesterday. Um, uh, she was a, a, a woman who had a big impact on my life, and I wanted to take that chance, or that opportunity to, to go and, and see her and uh, just let her know what a, what a tremendous blessing she was to me. But in that process, I got to uh, talk with some people that I hadn't seen since 1985, you know. And um, one of them asked me, you know, well, what have you done with your life? And I said, well, I, I'm a pastor. I, I'm a preacher. And he said, oh, really? How long have you been doing that? And I said, um, about 34 years, <laughs> you know. You see, back in 1990, God gave me a, a very clear, distinct plan of what he wanted me to do in my life. But here's what I want to tell you. That wasn't the last time God spoke to me about his will for my life. That was a very distinct, clear plan of, okay, start moving this way. But God continues to speak into our hearts and into our lives on a regular basis. So here I am. I'm no longer a 16-year-old young man listening to the Lord trying to figure out what I'm going to do I'm no longer a 17 year old boy that that made a profession of God has called me to preach now I'm a 51 year old man that God is still working in so every day I need to ask him Lord what is your will for my life there are certain things that I can say without a doubt are absolutely God's will for your life because those things are explicitly commanded in his word. There are certain things that is God's will for every one of us here today. Um, but you know what? There are also aspects of God's will that are unique to every individual believer. And that is the race that is set before you. You know, I mentioned this, uh, this discipleship process that, that we use here earlier and how that it starts out and it talks about the Bible and, and teaches you how to do Bible study and so forth. The last section of this book is all about knowing and understanding God's will for your life. Um, 
If that's something that you feel like you need, would you please let me know? I would love to, to get you connected with that material and with somebody that can help walk you through that material. So in light of the faithfulness of God, as demonstrated in the great cloud of witnesses, knowing because of all that they said, the Old Testament saints, about God's faithfulness, knowing all that our personal individual heroes of faith have said into our life and spoken into our lives, knowing all of that, what will you now do? Will you remove all of the sins and all of the hindrances that are weighing you down and tripping you up? Will you run the race that God has set before you? What will you do? Third thing is, is when will you do it? When are we to do this? <coughs> well, there are some grammatical keys in this first verse that help us see the when of doing thing, doing these things. And my goal in bringing up linguistic details of the text is always to help us understand the text more clearly, not to muddy the waters. And so at this point, I'm going to do my best to show you the baby without telling you all about the labor pains, okay? But there are some very key things here that I think are really important that we notice. And, you know, we just talked about the two things we need to do in order to uh, live a godly life. And that is remove all the hindrances and also run the race that God has set before us. And in the English Bible, it says, let us also lay aside every weight and let us run with endurance. As I look at that in the English language, it looks very much like these are the exact same verbal forms. Let us lay aside every weight. Let us run with endurance. But the fact is, is in the, in the Greek language, they are vastly different verbal forms. You see, the let us lay aside is an arismittal participle. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. And let us run is a pre present active subjunctive. You don't need to know all these things, but I want us to understand what it implies for our understanding of this passage. You see, when it comes to laying aside our hindrances, being an aorist participle, we need to do this before we are truly able to run the race that God has laid out for us to run. This needs to be something that happens before or, and continually, but before God can use us, we must remove these hindrances, remove that sin. The other thing that we learn about that, because it's in the middle voice, is that it is up to us to bring about that result in our lives. God will never force you to obey him. Did you realize that? He wants it desperately but he will never force you to obey him he will never force you to live a godly life it is something that we must do that's the reason that participle is in the middle voice the onus is upon us to do what we need to do to remove that sin to remove those hindrances and with the help of the holy spirit of god living in us then we are able to run that race and with the help of the Holy Spirit of God in us, we can remove those sins. He wants to help us, but he will never force us. Now, when it comes to running the race that God has set before us, I said it was the present active subjunctive. What does that mean? Well, number one, it's present tense. That means it's always happening. It's active tense. And the subjunctive there, the subjunctive mood expresses action that is likely to occur but it's not actually happening did you hear that god wants us to run our race 
And if we do what we're supposed to do, it's likely to occur, but it's not yet happening. Well, the present tense tells us that we need to be continually doing this. And the encouragement to run with endurance makes it clear that this is not something that is a a one and done, quick and get out of it. It is a marathon. It is something that we must continue to do. So what is the bottom line here? Well, it's been on the screen. You probably already read it by now, but I I put it up there in case you got bored as I talked to you about the language stuff. You could read something. Before God is able to fully use us to accomplish his will in our lives, he wants us to remove all the sin and other hindrances that will keep us from running our race. And this will only happen... If we continually offer our lives to him and allow his spirit to work in us. So I ask you this morning, do you have areas of sin in your life that keep you from fully obeying God? John wrote in his first letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful And he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you need to confess sin to God today and ask him to remove that from your life? Or do you have other things in your life, not necessarily bad things, but other things that are keeping you from running the race that God has prepared for you to run? Is there something that God's asking you to give up for him? That's a big part of my testimony that I'd love to share with you, but I don't have time this morning. It was giving up the thing that I love more than God in order to be obedient to him. When are we to do it? We're to do it now and continue doing it forevermore. The fourth thing that... Our fourth interrogative is the where interrogative. Where are we to place our focus? Well, the scripture is very clear. We're to turn our eyes upon Jesus, the initiator and completer of our faith, the the author and finisher of our faith, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I love how Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 reads in the Amplified Bible. And if you're unfamiliar with the Amplified Bible, it adds some uh, extra phrases in there to give you a better understanding of some of the words. And anytime it adds text in there, it puts brackets around it. I'm going to read all of verses 1 and 2. Part of verse 2 is on the screen. It says, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us, let us run with endurance and active persistence the race that is set before us, looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus." who is the author and perfecter of faith, the first incentive for our belief and the one who brings our faith to maturity, who for the joy of accomplishing the goal set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, revealing his deity, his authority, and the completion of his work. Although the voices of the Old Testament witnesses should encourage us, the key to endurance in running this race that God has called us to is looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. By insisting that we focus on Jesus instead of the name Christ, which was his By the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? Christ is his position. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, 
that was promised by God from days of old. He is the Christ. And it, but it says to look to Jesus. And by insisting that we look and focus on Jesus, the writer is calling us to focus on his humanity as we saw it here on earth. So what is the meaning behind the author and the perfecter? Of our faith. Well, Jesus is the author of our faith. Faith did not originate with one of the heroes of faith. It didn't start with Abel. And it didn't, didn't come into being because of Abraham. Faith originated with Jesus. Jesus is its founder. He initiates our faith. And... Runs faith, runs faith's race ahead of us and brings our faith to its goal. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. You remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast about it or brag about it. It is initiated by God. So Jesus is the author of our faith. He is also the perfecter of our faith. He perfected the way of faith. You see, for sinful people, saving faith involves reliance on Jesus' blood and righteousness as we recognize our own unworthiness. But for Jesus... The sinless priest, an unblemished sacrifice for sin. Faith was his trust in his father's assurance that after he fulfilled God's will through his death on the cross, his cries for deliverance from death would be heard and answered in his resurrection. It was his faith that he would be risen from the dead. Jesus' trust in the Father's promise was thus expressed in his readiness to endure the penalty and the pain of the cross. He lived a perfect life of faith. Thus, enabling him to be the perfect sacrifice for the sin of all mankind. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. In other words, his righteousness is put to our account. When God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. But folks, that does not mean that we are made perfect. He is the only one who is perfect. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 3 that we read earlier talks about how that the Bible has been breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete. Now in the King James it says that he may be perfect. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a process of perfecting him. Completing him. Equipping him. We see the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. When it says that he gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. In the King James it says for the perfecting of the saints. I don't know a single pastor who would say that he is doing the work of perfecting the people in his church. Not one of us. But God is equipping each one of us. So that word perfecting is that idea of completing the work in them, equipping them. And the thing that we need to remember is that this is his joy. This is why he endured the cross, which is our next question. Why? Why did Jesus endure the cross? He endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He knew that after enduring the cross that he would then be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And you know what Psalm 16 verse 11 tells us? 
It says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. This was the joy that Jesus was looking forward to that enabled him to endure the cross. He knew that after enduring the cross, he would be seated at the Father's right hand. But he also knew that after enduring the cross, he would be crowned with glory and honor. Just a few pages back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible says, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. One day, Jesus knew after enduring the cross that he would be crowned with glory and honor. But he also knew that one day after enduring the cross, he would be able to bring many sons to that same glory. Notice what verses 9 and 10 say. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Why did Jesus endure the cross? He did it for me and for you. He did it so that we could have an eternal inheritance as sons of God. And it says sons there specifically for a reason. Whether male or female... All of us have an inheritance as a son, which was a whole lot more important than just an inheritance. Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. And Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. You see, the shame and the reproach of the crucifixion was well known in biblical times. In fact, Deuteronomy 21, it tells us that uh, anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed by God. Well, the ESV expository commentary addresses this issue. It says this, Jesus' suffering on the cross, however, transformed its shame and reproach into an occasion for Christian boasting. I mean, think about it. Why do we have the cross that stands behind me on the wall? It's because we celebrate that which was shame and reproach to Christ. We celebrate it, celebrate it because he transformed its meaning. Believers can rejoice in their own mistreatment and dishonor for the name because Jesus has counted them worthy to suffer as he had suffered, just as they did in Acts chapter 5. Second Peter tells us that he has left us an example to follow in his steps. Well, what was that example? That we should suffer for the cause of Christ. He endured the cross, despising shame, so that we could be brothers and sisters in the kingdom. He endured the cross because there was no other way to pay the debt of sin for all mankind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 no, chapter 5, sorry. The Bible tells us this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. Sorry, I'm 
remembering what I memorized rather than reading what's in front of me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the reason Christ chose to endure the cross. Our final question this morning is how does Jesus continue to minister to us? Well, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And as he sits there at the right hand of the Father, he is interceding on our behalf. He is praying for us. He's lifting us up to the Father on a continual basis. I want to close by reading an amazing passage from Romans chapter 8. When I finish this, you'll have the message. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies or declares us righteous. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, did you hear that? I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray that today you are living a life that's characterized by faith. Father, we thank you for our time in this passage of Scripture this morning. And so, Father, now as we enter this time of invitation, Lord, there are a lot of things that your word has challenged us about today. And so, Father, I just pray that you would bring to remembrance through the power of your spirit the things that, that you want each person to think about, meditate on, and reflect on during this time of invitation. Father, I just pray that um, you would convict us of our sin and convict us of our need to obey you and your will for our lives. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.